you've seen the headlines. Bonds are making a comeback. But if you've ever tried to invest in bonds, you know what a clunky, complicated, broken experience it can be. That's why at Public, they took fixed income and fixed it. Now you can find, evaluate, and buy thousands of bonds with an investing experience designed this century. Add fixed income to your portfolio with corporate, treasury, and municipal bonds. Go to public.com forward slash bonds podcast to get started. This podcast is sponsored by Public. Full disclosures can be found at public.com forward slash bonds. Chat with Traders is sponsored by Trade the Pool. Are concerns about limited buying power, insufficient capital, or fear of losing your own money preventing you from advancing your trading capabilities? Trade the Pool is an online stock trading prop firm that offers funding for stock traders. Demonstrate your skills, trade their capital, and keep your profits. You can engage in intraday trading and now swing trading on Trade the Pool with any U.S. stock or ETF. The procedure is straightforward. Pay an evaluation fee, successfully complete the evaluation, and get funded. Visit tradethepool.com forward slash chat to learn more. Markets, speculation, and risk. This is the Chat with Traders podcast, hosted by Aaron Fifield. What's up, traders and investors from all around the globe? Thank you very much for plugging in to this episode of Chat with Traders podcast, or more specifically, episode 138. Now, with me on this episode, I have Kevin Muir. Now, I was first made aware of Kevin thanks to my buddy Ari Pine, who, of course, was on the podcast for episode 61. So Ari is a reader of Kevin's blog, The Macro Tourist, and Ari has suggested to me numerous times that I should try to get Kevin on the podcast. I guess I've been a little bit resistant to the idea because Kevin is, of course, a global macro trader, and I feel as though I perhaps struggle to ask the right questions when it comes to global macro because it's something I'm quite disconnected from. But Ari had also mentioned to me that Kevin is quite a short-term trader also. So that makes Kevin unique in many ways. The fact that on one hand, he's a very short-term day trader and on the other, he's a long-term big picture global macro trader. Anyway, I reached out to Kevin and we set up a call the other week just to have a quick chat. And it didn't take long for me to realize that I absolutely had to get Kevin on the podcast. I knew he would make a brilliant guest and I'm sure you'll agree with me after having heard this episode out. So anyway, we set it up and we made it happen and here we are. So a little bit of background about Kevin is he was a proprietary derivatives trader for RBC, which is a bank in Canada. And that was his role for a few years during the 90s. And then ever since then, you know, he did that for a number of years, but then ever since he's been out trading on his own as an independent trader. And one of the things I, I admire about Kevin and I have a respect for is the fact that he doesn't specialize in one particular thing. And he, he kind of goes against the grain in that regard because it's very counter to what many people advise or what many traders would advise to upcoming traders. And what I mean by that is, you know, Kevin says that 
He never knows next year where he's going to make his money. And he describes it as he's constantly in search of the next great trade. And just as an example, you'll hear him say during this episode is that he's done everything from risk arbitrage to mining Bitcoin to convertible bonds to day trading the S&P. So that's something we spend quite a bit of time discussing. In addition to that, we also talk about a few of the key lessons he learned from his time as a prop trader on the RBC desk. Obviously, he learned a lot during that time. So you'll hear about some of the things he picked up there. We talk about how he balances between being an intraday trader and also being a global macro trader. And to close things out, Kevin actually shares a tale about the discovery of oil in Norway. Now, I can appreciate that might sound a little bit strange, but I think you'll really enjoy it. I think the story brilliantly encapsulates the mindset of a great trader. So uh, stick around for that. Now, I do also want to mention that on the 29th of August, which is a Tuesday in the evening, I'll be doing a live podcast in Sydney. Okay, so if you're in Sydney or you're in the area, I hope to see you there because it's going to be a really great evening. I'll also be putting on bears and pizza for everyone. And uh, yeah, it's going to be a lot of fun. Tickets are only $15. They're very cheap and that's made possible thanks to the support of our sponsor, Trading Technologies. Tradingtechnologies.com if you want to find out more about them. They obviously are the the masters behind the widely popular futures trading platform. So yeah, check them out. But yeah, tickets are available at chatwithtraders.com slash Sydney. Okay. All the details about the event including the two traders who I'll be interviewing. Uh, You can find out more information about them there. Chatwithtraders.com slash Sydney. All right, let's cut to the conversation I had with Kevin Muir now. Please enjoy it. Uh, Here we go. Yeah, I was actually watching a documentary uh, over the weekend and I I thought of you, funny enough. Uh, It was a documentary called Betting on Zero. Have you heard of it? No, I haven't. What's it about? It's on Netflix at the moment. It's about, it's the story of Herbalife about Bill Ackman uh, taking a massive short position on Herbalife, ideally wanting to see the price of the stock fall. And uh, at one point, Carl Icahn steps in and takes a massive long position uh, purely because the two have beef with each other. Although Carl says he loves the company, Bill says he hates it. So it was kind of, <laughs> it was an interesting documentary. It sounds like a great one. I'll, you know what? I'll put it on my Netflix list. <laughs> For sure. I mean, have you, you would have heard of that whole saga before, right? Oh, for sure. Yeah. No way. It was, uh, you know, and even before um, Herbalife, I believe the two of them got on a fight on CNBC and it was kind of like five minutes of them just yelling at each other. And it was kind of the the the, the craziest financial TV that you've ever seen. I'm going to have to look that up. I'm sure there's a video of that online somewhere. Yeah. Well, I'll send it to you afterwards. It's, it's, it's unbelievable. And it's just um, maybe it was just at the start of that. But I, you're, you are correct that they had bad blood about a previous transaction that they had done. Yeah, they, they covered that in the documentary. Uh, I can't remember which way it went, but one of them sued the other for something like $10 million over an investment that they were uh, somewhat 
I think partners in. I might have that wrong, but anyway, something happened between the two, and they they had a big falling out, and then one tried to sue the other, and it, it got pretty messy. But yeah, it was just pretty funny. I mean, it was just like these two billionaire fund managers, pretty much just playing games. Oh yeah, and they're just they're two of the biggest jerks around. Basically, I'm not sure who's the bigger <laughs> jerk. Like it's it's a tough call. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. So Kevin, let's talk a bit about uh, your backstory. I know that there's a few interesting things we can get into there. So tell us about some of the things you did leading up to the point before you actually became a trader. So you became a trader on an institutional desk, but I know you did a few different things prior to that. Do you mind stepping us through those? Yeah, sure. So when I was going to university, I was, I had always been interested in the market. So um, when I was uh, looking for some a job to pick up a little extra money, I got a job at the uh, an investor investor line, which is a discount stock brokerage division of Bank of Montreal. And this was kind of in the early '90s, and they needed someone to answer the phones at night and give people quotes because back then there was no other ways to get quotes. And so I started working kind of four to eight every night. And uh, then things got busy, and uh, next thing I knew, they asked me if I could come in during the day, and I started rearranging my timetable for school so that I could work during the day and go to school at night. One thing led to another and uh, kind of before I knew it, I was the manager, you know, of uh, this little investor line, this stock brokerage, uh, this discount stock brokerage division that was kind of growing by leaps and bounds. And uh, I was going through there and I, you know, I was proceeding, I got my manager designation and stuff. And I realized that this isn't really what I wanted. So I, um, so I actually quit and I picked up and I, and I got a job in Chicago on, in the pits because, you know, I'd always dreamed about uh, working down in the pits and, you know, I, you know, how romantic it was, you know, screaming out bids and offers all day. And, and I got down there and unfortunately, you know, although I love Chicago and it's a, it's a terrific city and stuff, I just did not like working in the pits. It just wasn't for me. So I quickly packed up and uh, actually stopped, uh, quit that job and came back to Toronto. And when I was in Toronto, I, um, I, I basically went and, and decided that I wanted to be on an institutional desk. And uh, so what I did was I picked the five best banks, or it was actually four banks and one broker. And I put together my resume and I sent them off to the head trader of each of them. And, uh, and, I, and I followed up with a phone call and, uh, you know, a couple of them were nice and spoke to me. One of them hung up on my face and then another one asked me to come in and uh, for an interview. And uh, sure enough, it was uh, RBC Dominion Securities, which was um, generally considered the best bank at the time. And I got in and I got a job um, on the institutional desk. And the reason I got the job was because although there was a lot of um, traders who had more experience than me, and there was a lot of computer guys that had more experience than me, there was very few people at the time that had kind of a mixture of both. And uh, this was just at the forefront of kind of computerized trading. And what uh, RBC Dominion Securities needed was, you know, a younger person that could actually handle their program trading. So I was kind of lucky in that um, I was given an opportunity from a very young age. Um, I still hadn't got my degree and, uh, you know, I hadn't finished university. And there I was already on the institutional desk handling institutional orders because um, basically it was a new environment that uh, not many people kind of had seen. So we were making it up as we got it went along and, you know, a young guy was the perfect fit. And just so we can put a little bit of context around this, what year was that when you got that job roughly? So I got that job in 93, I think. I got it uh, in the early 90s. So it's just, 
So it's just um, maybe it was ninety four, but it was early nineties, and uh, and and at the time, you know, it was kind of funny because um, there was still a floor. Guys were still trading by hand. Um, you know, there was in, in Canada, we were a little more automated than the U.S., but um, a lot of the transactions were still, you know, written out, tickets time, time stamped, and it was executed that way. And these baskets that we started trading using the machine, they were something that 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 uh, the other uh, traders kind of didn't uh, didn't like necessarily at first so there was a fair amount of friction as you know these baskets would come rifling down the, the pipe and uh, you know execute kind of uh, 35 or 100 or 300 orders at a time and they these traders had never seen anything like this so it was it was kind of a it was an exciting time to be uh, you know uh, working on the institutional desk do you recall what it was that made you want to become a trader in the first place like do you yeah you know, my mom always wanted me to be a lawyer and uh, my dad always laughed. I was lucky enough. My dad actually um, was a research director. So I kind of grew up learning about stocks, talking about stocks at the dinner table. And uh, and he, although he was a research director, he kind of made me laugh because he actually traded a lot of like penny stocks, Vancouver penny stocks, and he was quite a risk taker. But um, he always kind of laughed and said that I he knew I was going to be a trader, you know, even from when I was younger, because I would bring up the board games and go play game, play game. All I wanted to do is play games. Um, so I, you know, had the typical kind of, uh, experiences that a lot of young traders did. Like, you know, I decided that I was going to count cards and I flew down to, uh, you know, Atlantic city to go become my card counter. And, uh, I used to have a, I had stint, you know, going to the racetrack and, you know, trying the handicapping and stuff. Uh, so I've always liked games and it was just kind of something that I, that I knew I wanted to do. So for me, it was kind of never in doubt that that's what I wanted to do. Did you have much success counting cards and uh, been on horses? So, uh, so the counting cards. Um, unfortunately, you got to count a lot of cards and and flying down after kind of work for for the night and then trying to you know catch the red eye or you know not even the red eye the early morning flight back home and then working. You you kind of you really have to be living there. So I think I kind of broke even, but you know after all the expenses and the time, it really wasn't worth it. Um, the horses. Uh, you know, it was probably a little uh, volatile if, if, I, if I had to say, you know, as, as more as most kind of young traders or gamblers of any sort, you know, you always take too much risk and you don't really understand. So I can't remember any specifics, but it was just uh, once I figured out that there was a better game out there, meaning trading, I kind of put all those other ones to the side and kind of focused on that. Okay. <laughs> now, as we're talking about your first job as a trader specifically, I'm pretty sure you have an interesting story, which you might be able to share, um, a story which kind of took place within the first couple of weeks of you uh, picking up this job. Birds for the bill. Does that um, sound familiar? Oh yeah. So my birds for the bill. Yeah. So when I got my job, um, the, the, uh, the fellows asked me how much I wanted to make. And I, you know, like I said, I just, I, I knew it was a great opportunity working for this firm. And I just said, I don't care as long as I'm paid, um, when I contribute. So they immediately signed me up. I think I was making $24,000. Like, so I wasn't making very much. And, uh, you know, I got on the desk and it's a lot of fun and I'm having a great time. And I kind of a couple of weeks in, my boss says to me, you want to go drinking? And I said, of course I want to go drinking. Let's go. So we head down to the bar down below and um, and we're there and we're drinking all night. And there's a whole cast of characters. You know, there's some pre-bond kind of broker guys. There's some guys from the bond desk. There's all these kind of exciting institutional guys there. And I'm just like, uh, like a pig in crap, like having a great 
time in my life. And kind of, you know, towards the end of the night, the, the, you know, some guy decides he's going to go home and he hands my boss kind of like 60 bucks for his share of drinking. And my boss says, no, no birds for the bill. And everyone's like, Oh, okay. And, uh, and he says, Kevin, are you in? I go, of course I'm in like, uh, you know, not knowing what birds for the bill is, but you know, this is my boss and I don't want to, I don't want to disappoint him. So he then proceeds to uh, uh, explain the game to me. And basically what it is, it's kind of a version of liar's poker, but it's uh, you put anywhere from zero to three coins in your hand. And then you commit to that and you put your fist over it. So nobody knows how many coins you have in your hand and everyone puts them out into the center. And then everyone collectively takes a turn on guessing how many coins in total the group has. If you get the number right, you're out and therefore you don't have to pay the bill. So I like have a look at this in the bill. It's, I can't remember what the number was, but it was a big number for me. I think it was more than my paycheck for the, for the, for the two weeks that I had already worked. And, uh, and the really scary thing was that I kind of, I, I don't think I had enough in my bank account to cover it at the time. So I, so I kind of laughed and, uh, but, uh, you know, I looked around, and I said, there's eight guys. What are the chances I'm going to lose this? You know, I'm going to just, I'm going to get the number and, and I'll be able to, to uh, get out. And, uh, so we go along, you know, I do a couple, one guy goes out, another guy goes out, another guy goes out. Next thing you know, I'm kind of, we're down and there's like four of us and I'm thinking, oh geez, I'm getting a little, I'm sweating a little and stuff. And then all of a sudden we get down and it's just me and my boss. And I'm like, holy smokes. So either I'm going to beat my boss and I'm going to have to pay this bill that I, you know, can't afford and I'm going to be embarrassed and have to ask it, or I'm going to basically stuck him with the bill. So uh, uh, luckily for me, I actually won and my boss picked up the bill and he was a nice guy about it. And he, he kind of laughed, but sure. It was a lot of sweating for me as a young kid. <laughs> Close call. Did you, uh, did you ever play again after that? Oh yeah. It became uh, kind of a staple. And, uh, you know, as you like, as in liars poker, you start to get better at uh, bluffing and double bluffing. And, um, it's not quite as complicated as the liars poker because there's obviously a lot more, um, digits in terms of when you're using dollar bills, but there's still a lot of strategy. And uh, the only thing that we kind of laugh about is it seems like whoever was the one who actually, you know, recommended or said, let's play birds for the bill. That was always the person who ended up losing. So it was kind of always, we were always kind of quiet nobody wanted to say play birds for the bill because it was always kind of like a bad luck omen like you wanted to gamble too much and and the market gods would punish you by sticking you with the bill <laughs> that's funny so i want to go back to a point you made earlier when you were talking about how you were almost in some ways at the forefront of uh, technology coming into the canadian marketplace so how did you find the other traders dealt with this? Like for you, you were just new into that role. And so you didn't really know any different in some ways, but you know, for the other traders who I presume had been there for a lot longer and were, did you find that some of them, and I think you might've already hinted at this a little bit, but was there a bit of pushback from those traders and how did they adapt? I mean, what kind of impact did that have on the desk as a whole? So we, you're absolutely correct. It had a huge impact. And it was kind of funny, though. It, it had a huge impact, but it actually it, it um, the traders adapted quicker than you would guess. But at the beginning, there was a lot of pushback. So um, a lot of it at the like. So one of the things that we did was we actually used to price baskets. And so a client 
um, would win a, like oftentimes in the institutional equity world, um, the, the clients win mandates from pension plans or from some sort of other client. And they actually get, they, they change, um, their, uh, provider, meaning like their money manager. So if money manager like ABC, you know, wins, uh, wins a mandate that used to be held by X, money manager XYZ, they just take their product. They just take this, the, the, uh, shares and they hand them to ABC and say, here, this is yours to manage. But a lot of these many managers didn't want to own those shares. So what they would do is they would phone us up and they would give us this list and it would basically be a portfolio of the previous money managers stocks. And then there would be on the other side of the, of the list, there would be a, por a portfolio of that they wanted to buy, like the new portfolio that they wanted to do. So we were at RBCDS, we were actually one of the big, uh, basket traders and we would offer liability markets on these huge baskets of the, you know, with the whole portfolio would switch over. And so when I first got there, we used to go and win these things. And then we used to print them by hand, meaning that, so we would give them a price. And then my job was to go and actually go onto the like floor and like, or not the floor, but through the machine and, and basically put up the trade one by one. And like, it just like, now it just blows your mind that anyone would do this. But back then that's just how it worked. So I kind of came to the conclusion after, you know, sitting there for a few months that like, we didn't need to do this. We could just load it in a program and just basically put the cross up on the exchange instantaneously. And I remember when I first did it, the pushback was huge. And all these guys, these old, I call them trade sources, were mad about this. They were mad about that, that, you know, it didn't work because they wanted a specific price on this. And, you know, they didn't understand we were doing it as a basket. But eventually we got kind of through that. But the funny part of the story was that kind of, you know, it was like a couple months into doing the new, the new technique the computer broke or I can't remember what happened. And, uh, you know, I was forced to do it the old way to trade it by hand. And I, and I, and the complaining was just as loud when I had to go back the old way as it was when I kind of tried to introduce the, the, the computerized way. So I, I was kind of shocked. So although they complained a lot, traders adapt and, and they did adapt and they, and they did, um, you know, change their behavior and they kind of figured out ways to make money and to, to, uh, deal with the new reality. Right. So the lesson is some people just like to complain. <laughs> well, there, it's true. And, and, you know, there's a times that there's that the exchanges and trading changes qu more quickly than others. And, you know, like I would say that HFT today is an example of, you know, there's a lot of traders that complain about it. And there's no doubt in my mind that HFT and, and VWAP trading and TWAP trading has changed the nature of trading. And you can complain about it and you can, you can pine about the old days and, or, or you can just adapt. And, uh, I, you know, I, like, I would encourage everyone to just that, uh, you know what, you can long, you can kind of reminisce about the old days, but it's not going to help you and it's not going to help your PL. So you better just figure out how to make money today. Absolutely. I mean, that's something which has really stood out to me from, you know, a lot of the really great traders is their ability to embrace new technology and keep up with, you know, current times and what's happening in the now and, you know, not get bogged down and stuck in doing things the old way because that's how it's always been done. You know, they're, they're very innovative in some ways and very creative as well. Yeah, I'll tell you, you know what, when I first came to my job on the institutional desk, I was always, I used to listen to all these stories and I used to go, oh, if I had only been here five years ago or 10 years ago, because these stories always sounded so great. And it would always seem like no matter what, back then they made more money because of this and this was easy. And, it, and, and my point is that it's always easy in hindsight. 
And there's always somebody making money today. It just, it just never, it's difficult to kind of realize it at the time. And it always looks so easy in hindsight, but you know, the reality is that at the time it's difficult. So like, you know, the example I use is that, um, you know, HFT, well, you could sit and complain about it, or you could go and automate your kind of trading. And a lot of guys did, a lot of guys adapted. And it's not like there weren't guys that you don't need to be doing HFT, but there's a lot of guys who have computerized their trading and have adapted and made themselves a lot of money. And there's others, you know, who have complained about it, but it's always looks easier in hindsight than it is today. Exactly. Yeah, that's a really good point you bring up. And it kind of, I guess I've had similar thoughts in the past where, you know, so even some of the guests who I've brought on this podcast, I mean, let's just pick uh, Ed Thorpe, for example. I mean, an absolutely phenomenal story uh, of a life that he's lived. You know, it's all very well and good to hear about that now, but you have to think there's probably someone who's actually living out uh, a, a tale just as great um, that we're still yet to hear about, you know, hasn't really come out yet in some ways, if, if that makes sense. <laughs> yeah, no, you're absolutely correct. There's going to be the next Ed Thorpe is out there today doing that. And you're going to be interviewing him kind of 10, 15, 20 years from now. And, and, and it's going to seem so easy at the time. <laughs> so that is a really great lesson that you've picked up from working on an institutional desk. I mean, is there any other lessons which come to mind? Well, yeah, the uh, one of the big ones that I kind of uh, kind of repeat often is the fact that what what's obvious is kind of useless. So um, I'll give you an example. When I was working on the institutional desk, there was um, there was a day when there was an IPO, and and on the day of an IPO, there's a lot of trading often in the stocks, and and the way an institutional desk works is that um, you know, it, well, I guess it doesn't work as much this any anymore because people don't trade principal as much. But back then, there was a lot we would actually call markets in the stocks like for our institutional type clients so we would look at the board meaning the the, the quote on the exchange and so if we had a stock that was like eight dollars bid to eighth and an eighth we might go around calling a market and saying we're eight bid you know five hundred thousand and we're you know eight and an eighth offered two hundred fifty thousand and we would be calling markets like this so on a day of an AP IPO, there's a lot of trading. So there's a lot of pressure for the traders to kind of call good markets and to get involved and to make trade for the firm. Because ultimately, as an institutional trader, there's there's prop traders, but most of the traders are actually agency traders slash prop traders that are trying to make commission dollars and trying to you know put as many trades on the tape as they can. So on this day, there you know it was it was a great lesson and it's something that's kind of stuck in my mind forever. Is that um, the kind of one of my senior traders was out and he was calling a market and he would go around and when I say call a market he would basically put out on the on his squawk box you know what the what the actual quote was that he was willing to buy an offer and then all the institutional client or I mean traders would be phoning their clients telling them what our market was and if the, the client liked us he would give us a trade or you know if the client wanted to respond or maybe they would give us an offer that we would work or a bid but anyway so he would go around and he said things like so I think the stock was trading like eight dollars and so he would go out and go well, I'm eight dollars bid half a million and I'm offering 250 at eight and an eighth. Well, my my kind of my senior boss that was a, that didn't trade very much, but was kind of somebody I, I I learned a lot from. I remember him coming in and saying, "There's no point in doing that. Everyone's out calling that market. Let me take over." And so I watched him. And so what he did was he immediately instead of calling a market, he just stopped calling a market and he basically 
put a million to sell at eight and an eighth. So he put it out, out on the board out loud so that everyone could see it. And then he went and he sold half a million on the board, meaning he hit the bid and he, and he, and he sold at $8. So he hit the bid and it's still $8 bid and it's offered at eight and an eighth. And you know, whereas before it was kind of bid for 900,000. Now all of a sudden it's only bid for 400,000. So he watches the tape a little bit. He's looking for things. He's watching the different prints that are going up. Then he kind of sees his opportunity. And instead what he does is he offers 1.4 million at eight bucks. So now all of a sudden, instead of the quote being $8 bid at eight and an eighth offered, it's all of a sudden seven and seven eighths bid at $8 offered because he's now the offering. So now all of a sudden he's changed the quote. And so what he then does is he finally calls a market and he tells the, he tells the, basically the, our clients, he says, I'm seven and seven eighths bid. Sorry. I'm sorry. He says, I'm $8 bid 2 million shares, meaning he's willing to pay the offering which is like on the board, even though it's his, he's willing to pay the offering, which is $8. And all of a sudden clients that basically, you know, had been hoping to sell on the offering, they now get a chance to sell on the offering. So he goes, I'm $8 bid 2 million. So all of a sudden, all of our institutional traders call around and we find the big seller. So the seller comes back and says, sold you 2 million at $8. Where are you bid for another 2 million? And he goes, I'm seven and seven eights bid 2 million, but let me work it. And then we proceeded to do the trades for the rest of the day. But the important part to realize is that until he moved the quote, until he took some chance and he, and he actually took some risk, there was no point in offering what everybody else offered out there. It was too easy. Like the clients weren't going to go and, and trade with us, but he made it so that the clients had to trade with us because we were willing to pay the offering price. And that's kind of the lesson that I learned is what's obvious is kind of useless. So it was calling it like a seven and seven eighths market to $8 was not really that, you know, impressive, but willing to move the quote and then say, you're going to pay the offering for 2 million. That was like true genius. So essentially, if we had to summarize that, it's about being one step ahead of the next person. Really? Yeah, you're absolutely correct. That it's just kind of that, that, that's what's, obvious like if, if everybody's doing something you're you're not going to make any money doing the same thing and you need to kind of think one step ahead you've seen the headlines bonds are making a comeback but if you've ever tried to invest in bonds you know what a clunky complicated broken experience it can be that's why at public they took fixed income and fixed it now you can find, evaluate, and buy thousands of bonds with an investing experience designed this century. They started at the beginning, reimagining the bond screener with an intuitive design that helps you zero in on the exact kinds of bonds you're looking for. Then they made it easier to evaluate each investment opportunity with better data in the places you need it most. Finally, they made investing in bonds as straightforward as stocks or any other asset. Add fixed income to your portfolio with corporate, treasury, and municipal bonds. Go to public.com forward slash bonds podcast to get started. This podcast is sponsored by Public. Full disclosures can be found at public.com forward slash bonds. Are you a developing or seasoned day trader who trades the U.S. markets? Is the only thing stopping you from getting to the next level is having enough capital to trade? 
Trade the Pool is a unique online stock trading prop firm that funds stock traders worldwide. Not having to risk your own capital can help you focus on other things like making better decisions on your trades. There's no PDT rules to worry about. You got more than 12,000 stocks and ETFs to trade, long or short, and professional tools at your side. How you get funded is you show them your skills through a straightforward evaluation process. Once you pass the evaluation, you get funded and trade with their pool of money and split the profits. Don't let the lack of buying power, capital, or fear of losing your own money prevent you from taking your trading to the next level. Visit tradethepool.com slash chat to learn more. Can you think of another example, perhaps more recently, on where... I guess this lesson has been helpful. Like it's, um, you know, you, you've been, how do I say this? You know, you've almost been willing to to follow the herd into something, but then you've almost remembered this lesson in some ways about, you know, what's obvious is useless. Yeah. Like the, this whole idea of, of the bears that have been trying to short the stock market the whole way up. Like I wrote a, like I, I wrote a piece about how, um, it's so easy to write a bearish piece. Like if, uh, if you want to get attention, all you need to do is write a, write a bearish piece and people will flock all over you. Like it's the, and, and they'll, they'll retweet it and they'll, they'll say how smart you are and you'll seem like a genius. But you know, it, it's, it's actually, it's, it's, it's too easy to write the bearish pieces. And, and it's actually much more difficult to stand in there and say, I'm bullish. Cause like, don't get me wrong. I'm not bullish because if, if I were to be bullish on the stock market, it's not because I think that everything's great. It's just that I, I understand the dynamics, the, 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 the cash flow, like the cash, like the situation, the flow of funds situation that might cause the stock market to go up. But what the, the hard trade is to go up and say, yes, I know the stock market's overvalued, but I think it can keep rising. And, and it's difficult, but it's, uh, what's obvious is often wrong. And, and, you know, and in fact, more and more, I, I found that when, when all the hedge funds go one way, like when you go and you start looking at the commitment of traders reports and they're all getting bearish on the euro or they're getting bullish on gold or bearish on that. The, in this day and age of limited alpha, it's like the worst thing you can do is, is to go along with their trades. It's, uh, it's hazardous to your financial health. Like, um, you almost have to, they, they have almost become the dumb money that you need to fade. What are these commitment of trades reports? The futures exchanges always, um, they, they classify different, different users in different ways. So a farmer would be a hedger. So like if some, a farmer goes out and sells wheat, he's considered a hedger. Um, if, if I go buy wheat, I'm considered a speculator. So they kind of, you know, they, they classify the traders in different ways and then they actually provide the data every Friday at three o'clock and you can have a look and see which way the speculators are positioned in every futures contract. So it's, it's a way to measure sentiment. Um, and, uh, you can get a, a, a good idea. And there's other things like, I know some of the foreign exchange, um, firms will offer, also offer retail sentiment. Like they'll actually tell you what their clients are leaning. Like they'll say the retail is long the pound, short the euro, long the, the yen. And so there's different ways to measure sentiments. It's just that the, the CFTC caught report is often one of the more popular ones. 
Okay, cool. Now let's speak a bit about, uh, I think it was around about 2000 when you went out on your own. So you went out trading. I think there was also you and a buddy of yours who you, you kind of teamed up in some ways and were just trading your own book. How did you guys go doing that? And what were some of the big differences you noticed from previously trading on an institutional desk to now trading your own book? Like I presume there were some challenges that came along with this. Right. So uh, let's just back up a little bit because when I first started at RBC Dominion Securities, I was um, purely kind of an agency trader, meaning that um, I executed clients on behalf uh, orders on behalf of clients. Um, gradually, I kind of did more things where I would um, trade proprietary, mean trading on behalf of the bank. Kind of within a couple of years, I had uh, kind of transitioned from all the way from an agency trader to a full time what they like call a prop trader, proprietary trader, where I was basically just executing for the bank. So um, I would basically do um, index arbitrage. Um, I would do all the um, the liability baskets in terms of when they came for, you know, all sorts of different, uh, you know, clients wanted to execute big, huge baskets of stocks. Um, I would do the rebalances um, for when the ETFs and also the indices went through changes. And then the other thing was that RBC DS was a very entrepreneurial shop and they didn't, um, they didn't stop you from doing anything. If you thought you could make some money, you, they, you know, they let you kind of run with it. And so, um, my experience with, uh, with the computerized trading, you know, had evolved and bit by bit, I started to do more different things instead of just executing programs, um, you know, kind of, you know, manually, I started to figure out how to auto trade them. And, uh, and then from then, from then we started to figure out how to, to do arbitrage between exchanges. So we were, um, basically one of the first to do the, the arbitrage between the U S and Canadian exchanges. So like research and motion was a big stock blackberry it was listed in both exchanges um we would sit there and have the computer automatically buy on one market and sell on the other market and uh and and this ended up being just kind of in the in the height of the dot-com bubble um a terrific business and uh i kind of laugh because when i was when i was writing the program and we were sitting there my one of my bosses came to me and he said what are you doing and i said well i'm writing this program to do interlisted arbitrage. And he said to me, why are you doing that? I already got eight guys doing that. And they used to sit there on the, on the phone all day doing it. Well, you know, by the end, I think that those guys, eight guys were doing something different because uh, we basically, the machines kind of put them out of business in terms of the interlisted arbitrage. Um, so it was, it was a, it was a, it was a great place because I was able to um, do a lot of different things and learn a lot of, lot of, you know, trade a lot of different products and and uh, and offered a lot of opportunities. Um, and then in uh, 2000, I. Uh, well, I had my first child and, and, uh, she was, she was born with a heart defect and I kind of, uh, she was fine and it was corrected at birth, but I kind of had one of those, um, one of those kind of life changing moments. Like sometimes people have a near death experience and it changes them. And I kind of, and my boss says, you know, you were never the same after, after your child was born. And I said, yeah, you know, you're, you're right. And I kind of, kind of had an idea about what was important in life. And I decided that I didn't want to work for the bank anymore. So, um, I, I quit and I, I quit kind of on our best quarter ever. And I, and I, I, I promised myself I was going to be like Michael Jordan and hopefully leave with the 
after sinking the three-point basket. So I quit and uh, and I wasn't sure what I was going to do for myself. I, I kind of knew I just I didn't want to work at the bank anymore because it had become more, more bureaucratic as the years had gone by. And I kind of toyed with the idea of going and working for a hedge fund. And uh, then I kind of decided that, you know what, I'm going to give trading on my own a whirl. And uh, if, if, if it doesn't work after a year and I go back for work for a hedge fund, nobody's going to nobody's going to remember that I that I kind of traded for myself for a year. But if I if I go work for a hedge fund and then quit in a year because I really don't want to do that, everyone's going to remember me as the bozo who, you know, quit two jobs kind of within a space of a year. So that was in 2000. So I quit. And uh, then uh, then the one of the fellows that I used to work with quit after me. And uh, I kind of always said, you know, hopefully I, I won't have to get a job. And uh, I've been lucky enough to not have to get a job since then. Um, and then in terms of your question about how things changed, um, well, I could tell you I missed the trading desk. There's no doubt about it. Um, like the, the camaraderie of sitting on a desk with all the guys and, uh, and, and gals, but, uh, but, uh, was, was a lot of fun. And, um, but the, uh, the thing that I missed most was, uh, you know, towards my end at, uh, at DS, at RBC DS, I was trading fairly big size, you know, so guys would, you know, phone me up and say, we're going up on a print of a million or something. You want to buy some? And I'd buy like a quarter million or something. And then when I was working trading for myself, guys used to phone me up out of, you know, out of just kind of courtesy and say, we're going up on a print of a million. Do you want to buy any? And I said, well, I'll buy 10, but I understand if you don't want to write the ticket because I'm, because you know, when I'm buying 10, I'm just kind of more of an annoyance than actually putting up, you know, changing, making a price. So I, I kind of, I missed the kind of trading institutional size because when becoming a pro trader for yourself you have to all of a sudden take off a lot of zeros when you're trading so were there any other challenges during that time like i guess obviously like you mentioned there you're trading much smaller size i presume that kind of forced you in some ways to maybe trade different types of strategies as well Sure. Well, you're absolutely correct. We could no longer use the bank's balance sheet. Um, so we had to change some of those capital intensive businesses completely disappeared. Having said that, things like risk, I mean, not things like interlisted ARB were still available to me. And although that the margins were going down, I would still be able to compete. Um, eventually those completely disappeared, but for the first kind of five years, five to 10 years, it was fine. And we could make, we could make some money doing that. Um, the, the, uh, the other thing, though, that we did find is that the, the banks were more like the I, I mentioned the fact they became more bureaucratic. They became kind of not as nimble. And when there when a trade popped up, they would eventually get to it. But it, it, it took a while for them. You know, they had to go ask somebody for permission to trade it or, you know, they had to write a program and they had to go get someone to like allocate resources for it. So for us, we were kind of much more nimble and we could just kind of whip something up. So if I saw an opportunity, you know, oftentimes I might have a week or two of trading it ahead of them where it was good money before they would come and drive it to zero. So yeah, I, I, trading smaller had its disadvantages, but it also had its advantages. So the other thing about trading smaller is I kind of laugh because you you should uh, there's there's kind of two opportunities I think when you're small when you're a small time trader. One is when when a trade is so big that everybody gets full and and it doesn't matter 
because they basically it can't handle the size. Like I remember there was a risk arb that um, that was coming out of the index, and I and I and kind of we had to buy some for the end. Uh, you know, there was um, the ETF was selling it to us because we had to guarantee the closing prices. And uh, back then there was no MOC, so we were on the hook for guaranteeing it. And I remember we had to buy it, and I was looking at this risk arb, and I was like, why is this thing trading so fat? And I I remember getting on the phone with a with a risk arb guy from New York and saying, you know what's going on here like you know i see you bought that last hundred and i think it was a masco i go i see you bought that last hundred a masco from us but like it sh this should be trading tighter and he goes i completely agree the thing is i'm full and i can i got i got it back off so the thing was it was a big enough stock that it actually filled up even the risk arbitrage guys so in those cases, that's when a little guy is at the same kind of, you know, has the same advantages as a big guy and, and he can go do the trade just as easily. The other one is when something's very small, that same risk arb guy that I spoke to in New York wouldn't bother with a company that's, you know, a hundred million because he can't, he's, he can't buy more than 10%. It's 10 million and he's, you know, he's just not going to bother. So for a little investor, so we found that oftentimes there was great opportunities in the stuff that the big guys didn't care about. So we kind of went for the both ends, the really big stuff that was too big for the, like so big that it kind of overwhelmed the market. And then the really small stuff, you should try to always find your niche, right? Like you do, you got to kind of know, like, you know, the line about the, if you don't know at the pat the Patsy at the poker table, it's you, you got to kind of understand, you, you got to understand your niche and you got to understand where you kind of fit in it. And, you know, I'll tell you one thing I always laughed and people, you know, on, so I had a lot of institutional contacts and they said, do you want me to give you a call with product? And I always said, don't bother because I know that if you give me a call on product, you're going to have already called all the really big clients and I'm basically only going to get the dregs. So what's the point of me getting a call? So I very quickly realized there was no point in, in getting calls. Now, one of the interesting things you did when you went out on your own is you started trading and correct me if I'm wrong here or I'm slightly off on the timeline, but when you went out trading independently, you began trading a lot of different things. So you weren't specializing in any one thing or you might specialize in something for a while, but then you'd move on to something else. Can you just tell us a little bit about, I guess, how you operated or still operate to this day? <laughs> for sure. So I don't specialize in one thing and I have a a wide variety of interests, you know, one day, like I, I love banging around S and P's and, you know, at the same time I'll go look at a convertible bond or I'll like look at a risk arb deal or, you know, at one point we were mining bitcoins way, way, way back when, when they were, you know, the first round. Um, so we've done, a, you know, a, a wide variety of different things. And that's kind of one of our strengths is again, the, the ability to not be put in a box. And, you know, I speak to some of my fun, friends at the hedge funds and they, and I'm kind of always amazed at how much they, uh, how restricted they are about what they're allowed to trade. So, you know, if I think there's an opportunity shorting boons, I go and I can short boons. Um, if they do, they have to go ask for permission for it and they, and it might not even be in their mandate. So they might not even be allowed to do it. So whenever someone says, you know, well, what, what do you, 
what do you, how do you make your money? And I always say, well, I'm not really sure. Cause I'm, I'm not sure what, what, you know, hopefully I'm going to figure out and, uh, the market's a tough game. So it's not like I figured it out every time, but, uh, you know, a couple of years ago, the, the oil, the oil bonds got really cheap. They got kind of when oil went to got hammered, I, I, I started picking up all those bonds. And, and so I started learning as much as I could about those and trading those back and forth and, you know, met some credit traders and started talking about individual issues and understanding all the different things. And, and then, you know, they, we got the rally and, and now there's just not as much action in there and there's not as much opportunity. So I'm kind of moving on to different things. So, uh, you know, when the boons kind of went to negative and uh, I started figuring out that, the, that it's what a, you know, what a great opportunity, what a great listed product this is. Like, uh, I started trading a lot of boons and, uh, you know, right now I kind of think that there's an opportunity and that there's a lot of vol sellers out there. So I'm brushing up and, uh, I think there's going to be a, a great opportunity for, for long gamma plays, like for guys that want to buy options. I think that, uh, the, these guys, these vol sellers are giving this stuff away. And, uh, so I'm brushing up on kind of my, uh, my option trading and, 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 and I don't just mean like buying, like, you know, calls, betting it's going to go up. I'm talking about like actually, you know, betting, like having an option book and trading, you know, long gamma positions and Delta hedging them and stuff, because I think that there's, uh, that there's opportunities there. So it's kind of, it's, 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 I, I am unusual and I'm kind of more difficult to, to, to fit in a box than some other guys. And, you know, at the end of the day, I, I just kind of take it that I love trading and I love learning about so many different things that, uh, you know, my, my interests kind of just hop all over the place. I really like this point. I think it's very interesting because it's quite counter to what uh, many other traders are like, where they really like to specialize in just a few products or a certain type of market or a certain type of strategies or a certain strategy. Um, so why do you think this is? Is it purely because you're just chasing opportunity around the place where you see, you know, potential for, for gains to be made? Or is there something else to it? Well, I'm I'm a big believer that everyone has to trade the strategy that works best for their personality. So I by no means think that the guy who trades just, you know, one product is, is, is any worse or better than me. It's, it's, it's just different and everyone needs to find what works for them. Personally, I love the challenge of kind of um, like I know when it came to like uh, that, well, you know, we spoke about that interlisted arbitrage, uh, you know, automated trading program that I kind of came up with. I, um, I I designed it. We wrote it together. And I must admit the kind of, uh, you know, six months or a year into it, I hired who, the, the fellow that ended up being my partner kind of afterwards to run it because I didn't want to run it anymore. I wanted to go figure out the next thing to kind of the next kind of great trade out there. So, um, I, I, I just, for me, it's just kind of, uh, it's, it's, it's kind of just a, a, a desire to always kind of figure out what the next greatest trade. And, uh, maybe, maybe it's, you know, hasn't uh, served me well. Maybe I would have been better off just sitting around trading one thing back and forth, but, uh, it just, it's just, there's so many interesting things. And for me, I just, I can't help myself. And, uh, so, you know, like Bitcoin's a perfect example. Like, um, you know, um, the, the, the fellow that works, we have a, one of the guys that worked with us is a computer guy. And he, uh, he told me about Bitcoin at $4 and, uh, he explained it to me and I told him that was the dumbest thing I'd ever heard. And, and I kind of laugh because uh, he then kind of, you know, you know, a couple months later, came back and goes, you know, that thing that you told me was the dumbest thing in the world is now $20. And, uh, you know, 
I realized that, uh, you know, if it went to $20, it can go to $100, maybe it can go to $2,000, $3,000. So we started actually mining the things and, and uh, mining Bitcoins. And, 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 and we eventually actually created a system to trade them on the various exchanges. And, and, I, and I used some of the techniques that we had learned on Interlisted Arb on the same Bitcoin. Um, and, and so we did all that. And I just, I just loved the, I just loved the game of it all. And it was just, it was, it was fun to kind of make this new business and it was fun to kind of come up and figure out what the issues were and, uh, and to kind of, uh, try to develop something that can make some money. You know, it's funny. I gave a talk, uh, last week actually. And one of the points I made is that a lot of really great traders have a genuine curiosity for learning. Um, and enjoy the challenge of trading. I mean, they all might express it in slightly different ways, but I think uh, it's certainly the case with you, that's for sure. Oh yeah, no, I, I laugh and say, even you know, if you told me that I had to do this and you were gonna, that it paid the same as, uh, so, you know, a lower paid job, I, I think I'd still do it. I don't, I don't think, I don't think I would, I'm definitely not one of those fellows that's in it for the money, because I just, uh, I love the game too much. Yeah, no, that's really cool. So are you still active in Bitcoin today? So no, basically after, so we, we, we had the miners and, and, uh, and, and we had these, we actually bought the butterfly machines, which were the butterfly labs, these fancy machines to, to mine them. And we actually had a point where our office was so hot because of the heat that it was generated. We had to move them into the garage. And, uh, we have all sorts of fun stories about like trading on different exchanges and the, and the realization that, that, you know, that the, that your credit at these exchanges is, is, a, you know, a real problem and that's kind of to me one of the big issues is that people give their money to these exchanges and these things aren't regulated you don't know who these guys are you don't know if your money's coming back like in mount gox um i very quickly realized there was a problem in mount gox and at one point we kind of said okay we, we went and actually deposited some bitcoins at every exchange and asked for money back like did a transaction and asked for money back and we would time how long the uh the checks would come to to get here and then we would decide on the credit worthiness of the different exchanges based upon how quickly the checks would come so, but anyways, after, after kind of it ran to 800 bucks or whatever, it, it went back down and, uh, I was sure, like, if you'd asked me, I was sure it was done. I, I thought there was, that that was it. That was the, uh, the blow off top. And I never imagined that it would, uh, that it would come back up here and, uh, and, and I'm, it doesn't really matter because the reality is that it's gotten so much more efficient, you know, and, uh, the miners have, you know, the, the level of sophistication has gone through the roof. So for me to try to compete on that would be kind of just foolish. Like there's, there's too many guys and there's too many smart guys for me to compete with. But when we first started, there was a lot of opportunities and we were lucky enough to take some money out of it. So Kevin, let's spend a bit of time talking about, uh, I was going to say, let's talk about how you're trading today in current times. Um, Maybe we don't even have to focus on specifically what it is you're trading, as I know that might be irrelevant if someone listens to this in a year's time. But um, let's talk about how you're trading because there's kind of two different sides to the way you do things, if I understand right. So on one side, you're very much a macro, bigger term, playing these bigger themes. And then on the other side, you're a very short-term intraday trader as well. So can you just tell us a bit about how those two kind of work together and, and how you do things? Sure. Well, work together. It's actually kind of, it's, um, 
I would say they're more at, at odds than work together. And it's, uh, it's one of the more difficult things. And having two different time frames in your mind is a very dangerous thing for a trader because it's easy to turn a short-term trade that goes against you into a longer-term investment. Um, so it's very, uh, like I struggle with this all the time to make sure that I don't mix my macro views with my short-term trading. So, um, when I go and if I'm bearish on S and P's for the macros, you know, on the, on a longer term basis, and then I get up in the morning and everything's screaming by. And, uh, if I'm fighting it kind of because of my macro view, I got a real problem because it's, it's kind of the two are at odds and I'll, I'll, I'll be honest with you. I struggle with that. And it's kind of something I I'm continually reminded of all the time. And, uh, that, uh, you know, some of my worst losses are when I'm basically mixing timeframes and, uh, it's something you have to be very, very careful of. And in terms of, so, so how I kind of arrange though, my trading, um, I, I, so, so we haven't spoken very much about the letter that I write, but I, I do write this letter called the macro tourist and, uh, and, and in there I, I will discuss my longer term kind of, uh, views and, and, and those will be positions that I will put on and I will hold kind of, you know, for weeks, months, you know, maybe even years at times. And, and those I try to kind of, you know, really let them cook. And, uh, so, you know, if I, I, one of my big trades right now is that I'm long, uh, t treasury bonds and or treasury note futures and short boons. Well, you know, I've held this thing for, um, six months and it's, and it's a trade with positive carry and there's a lot of things. And I think that the spread's eventually going to go closer to even. So it's a trade that I kind of, that I let just kind of, you know, I try to find something with a positive risk reward that I can, you know, that, that might have positive carry. And then I try to let it just, you know, do its magic and hopefully go my way. Um, but in the meantime, I, I will also on the day to day basis be trading the boon around and or trading Tino's round. And those are just strategies that are much more traditional. Um, I do kind of have some things that I've, learn throughout the years in terms of my my day trading that I truly believe in like um I don't know if it you know how many of your readers are familiar with Mark Fisher the the crude oil guy but he has a system and he basically um believes that you know if, if it's above the opening range breakout you should only be looking longs and if it's below you should be only looking shorts and I'll tell you you kind of uh you you put that system in place it you know eliminates a lot of the the errors that you can make um because i've often said that the the real the real uh, kind of uh art to trading is just to figure out which which ticket to write first meaning that um you know if you're in a kind of bull market you write a blue ticket first, a, a buy ticket, you know, even if you kind of buy it at the worst time, you'd be surprised uh, how much that skates you on side. And on the same on the bear market, you write a pink ticket first and, and you'd be surprised. Like even if you sell in the hole, oftentimes those things uh, end up being, uh, you know, uh, profitable. Um, so deciding which ticket to write first is kind of the real the real kind of magic to day trading in my opinion so i kind of use the mark fisher method like that uh, if it's above the opening range i like to write the blues and if it's below i write the write the pinks i know that's a little simple but the other thing i like to look at is the vwap i think you know i as more and more people have become 
automated in terms of, you know, executing their ex uh, trades through, you know, computerized, you know, algorithms, I get a sense of the, the, uh, the, the order flow in terms of whether it's leaning long or short, meaning whether it's consistently trading below or above the VWAP. So if I get a situation where it's, you know, um, just you get a breakdown out of the opening range and it's below the VWAP and it's been kind of heavy all the time, that's the kind of ideal situation for me. And I know that sounds simple, but I kind of think that in a lot of cases, the day trading is simple and uh, that uh, you just have to, it's it's more kind of your demons that, uh, the, the the, of things that you want to do in terms of like trying to buy the the bottom and doing all sorts of stupid stuff is is really what you need to you know avoid and if you do that and then just keep it simple day trading becomes a lot easier is there ever a situation where you might be let's say you're long a particular market uh, as a macro trade is there ever a time or a situation where you might be short that same market uh, during an intraday trade or do you keep the two completely separate? Oh, for sure. Well, yeah, I, I basically, I'll think about it in my mind is I'll, I'll, I'll put aside the macro trade and if boons are, if, if boons are looking strong and I'm, and I'm, I'm short over the long haul, like, you know, for my macro trade, but they're looking strong today. I, 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 I try to make myself buy them because I know that the setups and, 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 you know, are, they don't care. My, my long-term view, they, like it doesn't matter over the short, over the short run. So if I see an opportunity to make money over the short run, having the opposing view, ma view that I have in a macro long-term view, why should I stop? So I basically, I'll just, I kind of separate them in my mind and I, and I go long boons, even though I think in the, over the longer term that they're headed much lower, I'll still buy them. Okay. Is that something which has gotten easier for you to do over time? Like I imagine for some people that would be quite difficult to pull off because you're almost trading against yourself in some ways. Yeah, you're, you're absolutely correct. And, and it is, it is difficult at times. I, at times I do it great. And other times every now and then I just, I, I, you know, I, I definitely wake up with my macro view and I let it affect my day trading view. And, and it's something that, that I, I'm on continually on guard for. And it's something I'm, I, I'm trying to get better at. And you're right. Uh, it is something that as you do more, you'll get more used to it you kind of, you just, you realize that, that your long-term view doesn't mean anything over the, the short run. Like that's, that's kind of the end of the day, right? Like that, that, uh, that you, you should, you have to be kind of humble about your long-term view. Actually, you have to be humble about everything in this market. But, uh, you know, the moment you start to think, you know, that you know too much as well, um, is the times you get hurt the most, right? So I'm always thinking that there's a chance that I'm going to be wrong, like I'm always thinking about, you know, this macro view, uh, you know, this could go against me. And in, and in some ways, sometimes if the day trading sets up the other way, it's actually a risk reducing strategy for me. So those are my better days sometimes because I, I know I'm kind of lifting, like lifting risk off the sheets for, for a short period of time. Now, if we could, I'd like to drill down into the macro side of things a little further. Um, you know, it's something that is, I guess spoken about less frequently on this particular podcast. Just from a high level, what are you trying to accomplish as a macro trader? Like the way you see it, what, what is a macro trader? What's the job of a macro trader? Well, I, I guess, you know, and to some extent, I'm, I might not be the, the, 
the right person to ask because I've never had formal training as a, as a macro trader. It just, it just ends up being a kind of a, a part of the market that I enjoy the, the most. And to me, what it means is that it's, it's kind of a, um, a bigger picture, kind of a, a jigsaw puzzle with the whole global financial system and how kind of one piece might move another piece and, and how these all go together. And it's a big, huge puzzle. And, um, you know, like the, 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 the Chinese are, you know, having trouble with their housing market. So they put more liquidity into the system, which puts more stress on, on the currency, which then causes this to this and this. And those kind of, kind of, you know, different kind of relationships are what, are what really intrigue me. And, uh, and, and I, I just find it, it it's, it's kind of, one of the greatest puzzles out there to me is, is, is how this, this huge global financial system kind of all works together. So in terms of how like a, a macro trader, what they do, uh, you know, I guess, I guess what they're trying to do is look for inefficiencies, uh, and opportunities within a kind of a global f framework. Um, and some guys are kind of more, uh, like, you know, they're like more kind of, uh, sophisticated in terms of like ranking different things. And there's all sorts. And, and that's the other thing about macro traders. There's a whole bunch of different styles out there. And there's a lot of guys doing different stuff. There's like guys that are doing carry trades. You know, they're looking for kind of great opportunities to just kind of earn the carry on some currencies. And they would be generally considered macro traders depending on how they do it. There's other guys that are looking for, uh, kind of, you know, know what the buzzwords about asymmetric you know payoff profiles like they're looking for the next big short so like there'll be guys that are convinced that uh you know australian or canadian housing is the next big short and they'll be looking for kind of ways to put on a trade to express that view um so there's kind of a myriad of different guys that trade a, a, you know a million different things it's 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 such a broad kind of topic that it's that it's very difficult to kind of because there's so many different countries and there's so many different ways to play it and there's so many different asset classes. So it ends up being a very, 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 uh, you know, diverse set of, you know, of, of problem set. Yeah, there's certainly a lot of moving parts to it. Would you be able to maybe walk us through, uh, whether it's recent or a trade you took, you know, a little while back, like a macro trade, whether it worked out or not, but it would just be interesting to hear kind of how you went through it, like how you first developed a, uh, I guess you might call it a theme or a case, and then how you actually executed that trade, how you managed it uh, through to, you know, from idea to execution to then taking the trade off uh, at the end. I mean, are you able to walk us through an example yeah. So, um, when, uh, a perfect example, I think or a great example is, uh, the European situation. Um, when, when the U S went and did their quantitative easing, they were ahead of everybody else because the kind of the problems with the great financial crash emanated out of the U S. So they were the first to do well, the quantitative easing and they, and they stayed at it way longer than everyone else. Um, Europe, 
uh, tried to pull their, you know, the, the, they've tried to pull up on the gas and, and they actually put the brake down. Um, you know, he, uh, the previous guy, I can't remember his Trichet raised rates uh, two times after the, the great financial crisis and ultimately caused the European crisis of uh, 2011 and, um, and, 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 and basically kind of made the, created the environment where the US the the European economy was extremely weak and and all and all the problems associated with the different debt. Well, so basically um when when Draghi was forced faced with this um European crisis, he he went out and got the playbook and he basically took the same playbook as the US in terms of he just started to quantitative ease, meaning he bought bonds. And I came to the conclusion that everyone was very bearish on, on European equities and they thought that it's never going to work. And, and granted, there was, there are more problems in, um, in Europe in terms of, uh, the political problems of the union, um, than in there, than in the U.S. But I basically came to the conclusion that he's printing enough and this is going to be a situation very similar to the U.S. in meaning that the stock market is going to climb a wall of worry. And I came to the conclusion that uh, that the that European stocks were a great buy. Um, so I, I went out and I bought um, you know euro stocks futures, and and then I actually came up with a, a better way to do the trade. And this is kind of uh, you know uh, just something that I'm always looking for better ways to express a view. Well, I, I saw this this uh, interview where someone was talking about the fact that there was long dated. Um, options listed on um, the uh, the European indexes, and I'm talking really long, like six, seven, eight year long dated options. Well, so I priced these out, and I had a look at them, and I and I came to the conclusion that that these were a great trade because I could buy long dated options. I can't remember what the percentage was. Let's say it was ten percent of the of the of the notional. I would pay for an at the money call option, so I could buy an at the money kind of seven year call option for 10%. And I went through the model and realized that, that even though rates were negative, if I thought the rates were going to go high, go up, they would actually, that the options would gain even on the rate part of it as well. Like the, the row, which is the sensitivity to interest rates. Most people don't kind of put that into a model or don't think about it very much because the reality is on a three or six month option, it doesn't matter very much. But if you have an option that's seven years, you'd be surprised how much sensitivity to row they had. So I, I came to the conclusion that I, I could win on both sides of this trade. I could, I could pick up on, you know, when, when rates went back higher in the, in Europe, because at the time rates were kind of negative, like the 10 year boon was negative uh, 20 basis points or something, or maybe it was 10. But I, I kind of said, this is, this is unsustainable. This is ridiculous. These are eventually going to go higher. And at the same time, I think the stock market is going to go higher. So I thought I, I found an instrument that I thought could win on both sides. And I ended up, uh, I bought, I bought these things and, and I've, uh, I've been patient with them and let them cook. And at the time, a lot of, uh, people thought it was insane. And, and, you know, recently it's become more, acceptable to be long European equities. But at the time, it was definitely kind of an out of consensus opinion. And, uh, you know, proving a stop clock is, uh, you know, right twice a day, I managed to get one right. And, uh, and, and, and you ask about taking it off. Well, the reality is I haven't taken it off. And that's kind of the sort of trade that the really long ones 
I, I, I hang with for a long time and, uh, I'm not sure when I'm going to take that off. Um, I, you know, I'm going to wait for the, uh, the kind of the conditions to change. But in the meantime, they continue to print. And just like, um, just like when the U.S., we've been climbing this wall of worry, uh, what they printed and the, the stock market kept going up. And I, and I suspect it'll be the same in Europe. Do you find that's the case with quite a few of your longer term macro trades is that you are actually going against general consensus for the most part? Generally, I am. I'm a little bit of a knife catcher, especially when it comes, you know, on my day trading, I'm not a knife catcher and I, and I'm more of a trend follower and going with it there. But on my macro positions, my longer term positions, I'm definitely often putting it on um, when, when people are going the other way or at the very least when nobody cares. And I'm actually struggling if you had, if you had to kind of ask me my weaknesses, some of one of my biggest weaknesses is that when people start to agree with me on a long-term basis, like on those trades, I start to get nervous and, um, I've often taken trades off too quickly because I've kind of thought, oh, they're crowded now. And, um, I'm, that's like something I'm working on is to hang tough with the trade, even, um, even as everyone starts to agree with me. You know, I just end up being such a contrarian on those trades that that as when it finally starts to go my way, I'm kind of, you know, it, 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 it makes me feel uncomfortable. Right. And how do you manage risk on these positions, you know, on these macro positions? And I guess also, what signals to you that you might be wrong on a position? So, um, so in terms of what signals me is my P and L. Um, and then, uh, when it's, when it, when, uh, you know, I'm, I'm used to some pain going against me. Like if you're going to be catching bottoms and taking the other side, it's not like you put these trades on and you're going to time it and it's instantly going to be on side. It's not uh, that kind of thing. So, um, I'm, I'm usually, uh, I, I usually kind of I'm prepared for some pain when I put on a macro position and I definitely will let it go against me for a bit. And, uh, in terms of, you know, what, uh, you know, how I manage risk, I, I try to figure out ways to make my portfolio as a whole less risky. Um, and so for example, if I, got in a situation like, you know, where I was long one, one kind of stock market, or I was long one bond market, I might look for other bond markets or stock markets to hedge a little bit on the other side, or I might kind of think about how it interplays. Um, so if I'm long gold and then long currencies, which will traditionally go together, you know, like it, it, it might be something I'll think about and I might reduce one a little bit more, or I might be more prone to take a trade that is, I know, kind of a diversifying trade. So if I'm long, you know, um, uh, like, let's say I'm long gold, I really believe in gold, and then I get bearish on a currency, I might be more, more apt to take that because I know that naturally that's something gold and currencies will go together. So if I'm long one and short the other, it'll be generally something that'll make it so my portfolio as a whole has less risk. Okay. Okay. Got it. As we were talking a little bit earlier, you made a point and it's certainly not a unique point, but you said that people need to find a, a way of trading that suits their type of personality. Um, you know, it's something we hear all the time. As someone 
who is a macro trader, what type of personality or type of trader do you think is well suited to be a macro trader? Well, that's a great question. So with my letter, I, I've come to know, actually, I've, be, I've gotten some great context in terms of uh, people that I've, I've come to, to meet. And, and generally, these guys are um, much more traditional macro traders than I. And uh, the one thing that uh, I guess where, where I'm a little different is I'm sitting around banging S&Ps around all day. They're actually reading and they're, they're, um, they're doing things in what I would consider much more slow motion. And it, that makes sense because if you think about that part of my book, um, it's actually much slower and less active. So I would say that on the whole, the macro traders end up being a little more cerebral. They end up being somebody who um, wants to read something, go home, think about it for a day or two, and then put the trade on. Um, it's a little less high paced. Um, it, it like they often, I find them going to conferences and I'm like, where do you find, like, I'm always kind of shocked at the amount of conferences that they, they'll, they'll be away from the screens way more than kind of, than I would ever feel comfortable being away from the screens. And, uh, it's somebody that kind of just, uh, enjoys a, a, a puzzle that's a little bit bigger and it's a little bit has, has a lot more pieces in it. You know, and that's, that's kind of what I would, what if, in terms of somebody that would want to trade ma macro, somebody maybe that might be a little more kind of academically inclined. You know, you, you know, you put your, you put your guys that, uh, that were the kind of the jocks that, 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 you know, put, you put them in charge of banging back and forth S&Ps or, 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 you know, scalping, you know, Intel for ticks and stuff like that. And then you put your, you know, generally I would say that, that you, they might be more inclined to have the geeky guys trading the macro. That, that's just <laughs> my impression. Who knows? That might be completely wrong and I might have just offended a whole bunch of people, but, uh, <laughs> that's kind of, uh, you know, it, I, I don't think that the macro traders are, are generally the cool guys. Um, the, uh, you know, apart from the, you know, the occasional guys like Paul Tudor Jones or stuff, but, uh, but on the whole, it's kind of the, the guys that are, that, uh, are a little more slow paced. Sure. Okay. I think you're safe with that. <laughs> All right, Kevin, well, we're getting on a bit. Um, while I have you here, I do want you to share one last story and it's about what encapsulates a great trader. And you have a story that has something to do with the discovery of oil in Norway. And I'd love if you could share this because I think it will, uh, kind of expand people's minds a little further or at least help in some ways. So yeah, would you, would you like to share that story? Yeah, sure. No problems. Great. Yeah. It's one of my favorite stories and, uh, I, you know, I don't know if it's true, but I've never let the truth get in the way of a good story. And, uh, it has to do <laughs> with the, uh, with the Norway, um, the, their discovery of, uh, of oil in the North sea. And, uh, it happened in the late sixties and in 1969, there was, uh, there was uh, basically uh, uh, an oil driller called Ocean Viking that struck oil in the North Sea, and uh, very quickly the the, the markets and, and Norway Norwegians realized that they had hit um, a lot of oil, 
and uh, kind of uh, there was a frenzy and it's a, a frenzy of like 1998 kind of dot com uh, proportion. And uh, all of a sudden, everyone wanted to buy oil. Um, there was people making fortunes because, uh, you know, of, of, uh, of the, the amount of oil that they could see that they were going to all of a sudden be pumping. And, uh, and there was kind of just an, an epic bubble. And into this bubble, kind of uh, the hero of our story kind of, you know, uh, kind of wanders in and he realizes that the market is very quickly priced in kind of the best scenario, that there's very little money to be made trying to compete, buying all these inflated oil assets because, you know, the moment that the that the government started auctioning off the next block of land, you know, speculators were busy or, um, or underwater land, but the next, the next block of, uh, drilling rights, they, uh, the speculators were busy ramping up the price of this and, uh, and the frenzy was kind of all over the place and everybody was busy doing this. And except our speculator, this wise old guy, he kind of had a look at the situation and sized it up. And instead of trying to compete, with all those other people, he, he kind of thought about things for a little bit and he, he then started to go and he started to buy all the Norwegian art. And the thing you have to realize about the art market is that the art market is very local. Like, yeah, there's the Picassos and all those, the, the international, the, the few guys that, that kind of transcend all the different international, like everyone wants to own a Picasso and stuff. But let's face it, there's not a lot of demand for Norwegian art, except for by locals. And this, this, this kind of wise speculator, he figured out that once these kind of these new millionaires, because don't forget, this is 1969 when a million dollars was actually a lot of money. Once these millionaires kind of, after they kind of had made their fortune and bought some land and maybe bought a boat or two and, you know, gone and done all this stuff, they would start to look for ways to spend their money and they would buy art and they would buy local art. And so while nobody was looking, this guy basically bought all the Norwegian local art that he could find and he bought all the best pieces. And then kind of, you know, a couple years later, when all of these millionaires, you know, started looking for excuses to spend their money, something to spend their money on, they started coming. And what do you know? They started bidding up the price of Norwegian art. And sure enough, our speculator was there once it had been bid up to show them a great offering. And that to me kind of just encapsulates what a, what a great speculator is about. It's somebody that's looking, you know, for the, for that, that edge or that kind of thing that everybody's missing, taking it to the next level and figuring out kind of what the next move will be or what the next couple moves will be down the road. And, uh, you know what, when I think about my trading, I always try to, you know, be just like that Norwegian, you know, speculator. Yeah, I love it, man. It's such a great story. It's, I guess, it's the the pinnacle of a great macro trade. Am I right? <laughs> yeah, you're absolutely right. Cool. And I know you wrote about that on your blog, so I'll be sure to include a link to that uh, that particular story or article, post, whatever you want to call it, uh, in the show notes as well. Now, your blog or your website is, of course, the macrotourist.com. I want to ask you, Kevin, like, what actually? What made you decide to start writing? <laughs> well, that's funny because actually what I originally started as a journal 
and it started as a journal to myself. And, uh, you know, I think writing for yourself is, is a, a great tool for traders. You know, 90% of trading is, is mental and, and, and let's face it, you're kind of, you're battling yourself as much as, as anybody else. And, um, journaling is just such a, a helpful technique. And, uh, so it started as a journal, but then it kind of moved on and I started to write about the markets just to put my, put my, uh, kind of thoughts onto paper. And, and then I started letting the guys I work with read it. And then every now and then kind of a buddy would phone up and he would say, what do you think of the market? And I would let him read it. And, Eventually, I just kind of stuck it on the web and, and, and started writing it on kind of pseudo regular basis. And, uh, and I was kind of surprised when some people started writing it, I mean, reading it and, uh, and they started emailing me and stuff. And I, and I, and I, and I just kind of stuck with it. And I started doing it more and more and I started to make more contacts and I, and I really enjoyed it. And you know what? Like somebody said something to the effect that if you want to really know a subject, teach it. And I can't tell you the number of times that, um, writing a piece has made me kind of formulate exactly what I think. And I can't, I, I don't get away with being kind of wishy-washy and having uh, half-baked ideas. Although I guess you might argue some of them are half-baked, but at the very least it, 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 it kind of forces me to um, articulate it. And, and when you're forced to articulate it, you're really forced to kind of try to, to you know, wrap your head around it. And um, so I started writing it kind of on a more serious basis. And um, since then it's been great. It's kind of, it's enabled me to meet a lot of people and, uh, and it's, it's, it's offered a lot of opportunity to learn from other people and, and, uh, and, and I've really enjoyed it. So it's just something, you know, I do for free and uh, you're welcome to go sign up and uh, you're not, you're never going to be spammed and I'm not selling anything. And, uh, and, and my tagline is all I bring to the party is 25 years of mistakes. And uh, it's kind of just, that's, that's what, uh, that's what you're going to get. Cause you know, as much as, um, as, as much as everyone thinks that there's somebody out there that's, that's, uh, you know, uh, you know, the guru that's going to give them all the answers. The reality is that those guys are making mistakes all the time as well. And it's continually, everybody's always learning and everybody's always being forced to, um, adapt. And, uh, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's something that we have to all realize is that nobody else has the answer for us. You have to find it yourself. But, but, uh, by, by reading and, and listening to other people's opinions and, or, or not opinions, kind of experiences, you start to learn. And actually, while I'm talking, while we're talking about this, I just want to take a moment to thank you for this podcast. You know, I've, I've, I've long admired it and uh, I can't tell you how many of those podcasts I've sat down and listened to other people's kind of uh, processes and, and I've learned tons and even kind of, you know, after 25 or 30 years trading, I find I go and I listen to a different trader and I'm like, Oh, that's, that's a great point. And it's something that I learned and, and you're to be commended for this because, uh, it's a, it's a, it's a great resource you're offering to traders. And, uh, you know, I was lucky enough to sit on a, on an institutional trading desk and learn from a lot of great traders, but you know, a lot of other, other people in my day and age didn't have that opportunity. Well, now you're, offering it and you're actually offering it even better because you got 130 interviews up there and uh they're all terrific and and people can learn from each and every one of them so you're you're like i just want to say thanks aaron because it's uh it's a terrific uh terrific uh thing you're doing for the whole trading community uh thank you very much i greatly appreciate it kevin it, it means a lot thank you 
Um, and I'm glad that you threw in your tagline there. I was hoping we would uh, hear that at some point. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. So if anyone wants to find your blog, it's themacrotourist.com. And you're also on Twitter. What is your Twitter handle, Kevin? So my Twitter handle is at Kevin Muir, M-U-I-R. And uh, yeah, and you can uh, feel free to, you know, shoot me a uh, message there or, uh, you know, you can also sign up for the the letter and uh, you can get my email from there. Very good. Well, once again, Kevin, I do want to say I really appreciate you coming on the podcast. It's been an absolute blast. Thank you very much. It's been my pleasure. Thanks for having me. You've reached the end of this episode of Chat with Traders. But rest assured, there are more episodes loaded with real market insight and zero hype on the way soon. So to stay updated with each great new release, subscribe to the podcast and iTunes. And we'd love it if you'd leave a rating and review. We'll catch you next time on Chat with Traders. 